Hey, just a note. I'm so excited to announce that Method and Madness is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas. The festival is for you, the listeners, and is designed around your desire to mingle and interact with the podcasters you listen to regularly. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. Check out all the details at truecrimepodcastfestival.com, including info on how to get tickets and hotel reservations. Prices do go up the closer we get to the event, so you won't want to wait. I hope to see you at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. An unidentified man staying in a hotel displays bizarre behavior over the course of four days before being discovered dead on a beach in Ireland. Thirteen years later, it's still a mystery. Who was the man who called himself Peter Bergman, and why did he seemingly go to great lengths to hide his identity? This is Method and Madness, Episode 43, The Mystery of Peter Bergman. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Revenge. Method and Madness. Security cameras capture a man in a hotel lobby pacing. He looks at the watch on his wrist, clutches the purple plastic bag in his hand. He's fidgeting, his hand in his pocket. He walks outside and puts a cigarette in his mouth, lights it. Closed-circuit television tracks him as he walks away from the hotel still gripping the purple plastic bag. But then his whereabouts are unknown, as no cameras capture his next steps. Later, he is seen returning to the hotel without the purple bag in his hand. He'll do this routine 13 times over the next three days. Three months later, there are no friends, no co-workers, no family at the man's funeral just six people in attendance, the gravedigger, the undertaker, and some of the officers from the investigation. Police wait, hoping that someone, one of his friends or family members, will come forward looking for their loved one, and then he can finally be identified. The wooden cross, the blank marker in front of his grave to be removed, a proper tombstone put in its place. But until then, investigators will trace the man's steps, speak with witnesses, and construct a timeline of the deceased man's final four days. And with each discovery, the case gets more strange, and answers seem to be out of reach. Let's dive in. Folded neatly on a rock, Lie a stack of clothing. It was early that morning, earlier than most people would be up, out and about. 
The day was Tuesday, June 16, 2009, at the first beach on Ross's Point in Sligo, Ireland. It was 17 degrees Celsius, 62 degrees Fahrenheit, and the beach was quiet and foggy. Arthur Kinsella was walking the shoreline, taking in the scenery, as his son Brian swam in the ocean, training for an upcoming triathlon. At about 6.40 a.m., something in the rocks that littered the sand caught Arthur's eye. His initial thought was that it was a mannequin. That's what it looked like, anyway, lying face down. He walked toward it and saw that it was, in fact, a man. He looked to be deceased. Arthur reached his hand toward the man's ankle and touched it. It was cold, marble cold, as Arthur described it. He called to his son and told him to get out of the water. The two walked around the body of the unknown man and said a prayer. Arthur called the police at 6.45 a.m., and Sergeant Terry McMahon and a few of his officers responded to the scene. The gray-haired man, who appeared to be in his 50s or 60s, was pronounced dead at 8 a.m. by Dr. Valerie McGowan. The initial assumption was that he may have drowned and washed up on the shore, but Sergeant McMahon noted that it didn't seem he was in the water for very long. The man was wearing purple-striped swimming trunks with a pair of underwear over top them and a navy-colored T-shirt tucked in. About 300 meters, or 1,000 feet, away from the body, the man's personal belongings were eventually found by Sergeant McMahon and his officers. Some cash and coins equaling about 149 euros, or $155, in several different pockets. Blank papers, bandages, a travel pack of tissues— tablets of Bayer aspirin which were manufactured in the Czech Republic and distributed in Germany, a bar of hotel soap still in his wrapper, a watch and clothing folded neatly on that rock. The clothing didn't look like something a swimmer would wear to the beach. It looked like business attire. Socks tucked into black leather shoes, navy blue pants, a black leather belt, a black jumper or sleeveless sweater, and a black leather jacket. An important note here is that a lot of emphasis is placed on the fact that all of the labels and tags were removed from the clothing, leading to speculation that the man had been meticulous about hiding these details. However, while there were some tags removed, there were some remaining, like the Tommy Hilfiger tag on his sweater and the printed label on his belt, which read, Key West, USA. His pants and leather jacket were from C&A, a clothing brand located throughout several countries in Europe. I'll include a photo of the belongings on the Method and Madness website and on our social media. And so would begin the processing of the case police called Unidentified Mail on Ross's Point Beach, they had covered the body in a tarp to prevent looks from curious beachgoers, called the coroner, and were mentally preparing for the painful step of notifying the next of kin. And in the first of what would be many baffling moments in the investigation, that look through the man's clothing turned up no identification. Who was he? 
the next day at Sligo University Hospital, a post-mortem exam was conducted and foul play was ruled out. The autopsy revealed that saltwater drowning was also ruled out. The man had died of cardiac arrest. Other findings revealed that the man had advanced prostate cancer, and Dr. Clive Kilgallen, who conducted the autopsy, said that it was terminal and had spread. He said it was very unlikely the man was unaware of the illness. The man also had bone tumors and signs of previous heart attacks. His fingerprints and DNA were obtained, and it was noted that the man had had several dental procedures done over the years. Toxicology reports showed that there were no traceable painkillers in his system. The Garda, the National Police Service of Northern Ireland, investigated for months, trying to identify the man, attempting to find his family, but nothing turned up. His dental records were not traced back to any known dentists, and nobody came forward looking for a missing relative. Slowly, during the course of the investigation into the identity of the man and his death, a timeline was uncovered, of most, but not all, of what the man had done for the four days leading up to his death. While examining this timeline and the footage that captured a lot of the man's movements, it's obvious that he was deliberate in his actions. We'll walk through the man's whereabouts, the events that led up to the discovery of his body on a beach, and the lengths he, seemingly, went to to hide his identity. As is the case with most real-life mysteries, there are a lot of theories out there on this one. There's also some misinformation. As we walk through it all, we'll also examine some of the theories. The man's movements were tracked only as far back as the previous week, starting on Friday, June 12, 2009, when he was seen on CCTV at Ulster Bus Station in Derry, a city in Northern Ireland. There is no knowledge of where he was before arriving at that bus station. He was tall, slender, with gray hair and glasses, and carried two bags. One, a black laptop bag that he wore on his shoulder, and the other, a larger carry-all. He was dressed in clothing similar to those that were found deserted on the beach, business attire. He asked a bus driver if they were going to Sligo, about 136 kilometers, or 85 miles, from Derry. The driver noticed that the man didn't have an Irish accent, but sounded Eastern European. He directed him to another bus, and the man boarded that one, which took him to Sligo. Now, that bus driver, who said he sees hundreds of people a day, does not remember anything about the mystery man. When the man arrived in Sligo around 6.30 that evening, again captured on CCTV, he asked a taxi driver to take him to a cheap place to stay. There are lots of hotels within a 10-minute walking distance of the bus station, so there's speculation that the man was unfamiliar with the area and therefore relied on a cabbie to bring him to a hotel. Perhaps he knew there were hotels nearby, but didn't want to drag his luggage around until he got to one. Maybe he was completely new to town. That is unknown. 
And so he was brought to the Sligo City Hotel on Key Street, located right in the center of town, near restaurants and shopping. The man did not have a reservation, but asked the front desk for a room for three nights and paid for it in cash. 65 euros per night, the equivalent of about $68. Allowing for inflation, that would be about 82 euros today, or $89. The man registered under the name Peter Bergman. That's B-E-R-G-M-A-N-N. He signed the registry with his right hand, and the staff member who assisted him said that it sounded like he had a deep German accent. He was not asked for identification. The address he provided at the front desk was Austria of Einstetterson, 15, 4472 Wien. Let's break that down for the sake of understanding Austria's address format. Formatting goes street name, postal code, followed by town. Based on this, it seems that Einstetterson is the street, 15 is the street number, 4472, the postal code, and the city is Wien, or Vienna. Some sources say that a search of this address brings up a vacant lot. However, it doesn't appear that Einstetterson is even a street in Vienna. In fact, when you search it, the only thing that comes up are stories about the mystery of Peter Bergman. In either case, safe to say that Peter provided a fake address in Vienna. The postal code of 4472 is also not a valid Austrian postal code, although the format is correct. Austria's postal codes are four digits, and those that begin with four are located in Upper Austria, which borders on Germany and the Czech Republic. When investigators looked into all of this, it was then that they realized without identification and with a fake address, it was probable that Peter Bergman was not the man's name. According to Ancestry.com, the name Bergman with that spelling is German, also found in Sweden. Census data shows that the name originated in the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Scotland between 1861 and 1920. A look into available records of a man named Peter Bergman entering Ireland turned up nothing for the investigators. There was no trace of a Peter Bergman matching the physical description of the man anywhere in North America, South America, or in Europe. It was as if the man appeared out of thin air, with no clues as to how he had arrived in Ireland. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself 
and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's betterhelp.com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Peter stayed in room 705 at the Sligo City Hotel and came down the elevator to the lobby every morning around 8.30 a.m. for breakfast service. He was seen several times throughout his stay, going outside to smoke a cigarette. This was all captured on the hotel's security cameras that were positioned throughout the lobby. In his hand, he carried a purple plastic bag that appeared to be full of items, and this is one of the more bizarre behaviors Peter exhibited. Thirteen times over his three-day stay, he left the hotel with that full purple bag in his hand and returned without it, or with it empty and folded in his pocket. It's theorized that Peter was taking his personal belongings out of the hotel in phases, and throwing them away or otherwise getting rid of them. But despite all of the posted security cameras in the area, not a single one captured Peter throwing away any of the items or handing them off to anyone. Let's think about that for a moment. Why would someone throw out their items in stages, in small batches, that is, 13 times? Like Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption, slowly ridding his pockets of what he collected from his wall. One may do this because it's their only choice given the tools at their disposal. Alone in a hotel room with only luggage that he didn't want to drag around the streets of Sligo, that purple bag may have served as his pocket of concrete pieces. Was this his entire purpose of spending those three nights in Sligo? Did he travel away from his own home to get rid of specific items? Since he was never caught on camera throwing anything away, it's probable that Peter was being careful not to get caught on camera. Had he found an area nearby that had no obvious cameras? If he was unfamiliar with Sligo, how would he know where that was? or what to look for. Or as speculated by Sergeant Terry McMahon, was he former military or police? Had he visited the area before? Was he meeting someone in secret and handing off the items? Again, all of this is unknown, but one of the most crucial details of Peter's time spent in Sligo. I considered what I would do if I wanted to dispose of items without being seen on camera, My first thought was a public restroom. I would be able to throw things away, possibly without being seen by a witness, depending on if the restroom has a shared space or if it was a single-person occupancy, and I surely wouldn't be caught on camera. But the fact that Peter did this routine 13 times is puzzling and would indicate he most likely utilized 13 different garbage cans, leading investigators to speculate that he was slowly and methodically getting rid of items that would identify him and minimizing the risk that those items would ever be found. He is never seen on camera talking to anybody when he's out and about, and he's never seen talking on a cell phone. After watching his movements on video 
And zooming in on the purple plastic bag, I'll try to describe it as best as I can. It's difficult to see if there's any writing on it. It resembles one of those bags that you would get at a gift shop with a die-cut handle. Another question that floats around is why Peter is always seen returning to the hotel without the bag. Did he throw it away and have more empty bags in his room? Or did he just throw away the contents of the bag? Searches in dumpsters, trash cans, private properties, and the local dump have never turned up any of the items that were most likely disposed of. That Saturday afternoon, cameras captured Peter at the local post office where he bought eight 82-cent stamps, along with airmail stickers. It currently costs one and a quarter euros to mail a letter in Ireland, but in 2009, 82 cents would have been more than enough as the cost was about 55 cents. 82 cents would have been enough to send mail internationally, but there is no footage of him actually dropping any mail into a box, and the outside mailboxes didn't have cameras. Another dead end in the identity of Peter Bergman. In the documentary, The Last Days of Peter Bergman, an employee of the Sligo City Hotel spoke about how she had entered Peter's room to clean it and found him inside. He looked startled that he froze when she walked in, like she'd caught him doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. But in general, the staff at the hotel said he was pleasant and polite, but not social. On Sunday, around 11 a.m., Peter approached a cab driver while holding a map, asked where there was a quiet beach to go swimming. The driver recommended Ross's Point Beach and drove Peter there, about a 13-minute drive from Sligo City Hotel. Once they arrived, Peter got out of the cab, looked around for a bit, and then got back into the car and returned to the hotel. On Monday morning, Peter went to the front desk and requested a late checkout. He needed a few extra hours to run some errands. The staff told him it was no problem. At 1 p.m. that day, he dropped off his key at the front desk and left the hotel with both of his bags, the laptop bag and the larger carry-all, along with a purple plastic bag. He was wearing dark pants, dark shoes, a blue collared shirt with a V-neck sweater over it, and a dark leather jacket. It's unclear what his immediate next step was, whether he took a cab or he walked, but he ended up at Sligo bus station at 1.32 p.m., stopping and standing in front of a shopping center on his way. He was no longer in possession of the carry-all bag, leading to speculation that he'd already gotten rid of everything in the bag and then disposed of it somewhere. That bag was never found. At the bus station, he purchased a cappuccino and a sandwich and sat down at a small round table. There were other people eating lunch at nearby tables, but Peter didn't engage in conversation with anybody. Cameras captured him taking pieces of paper out of his pocket and reading them before tearing them up and throwing them away in a garbage can nearby. And yes, as you probably guessed, those pieces of paper have never been found. Around 2 p.m., he approached a depot inspector and asked which bay was for the bus to Ross's Point. 
The inspector later said that Peter looked stressed. He boarded the 2.40 p.m. bus with a one-way ticket and arrived at the stop for Ross's Point Beach, Yeats Country Hotel, the only hotel on the beach, at 3 p.m. There are no witnesses that recall him going into the hotel. Throughout the rest of the day, which was warm, 17 degrees Celsius, 62 degrees Fahrenheit, Peter was seen by several witnesses. Now, this is a beach that a lot of people go to to swim. It's good for walking and that sort of thing. So there was a relatively large amount of people out and about that day. At about 4 p.m., he was seen walking on the beach with a black laptop bag on his shoulder, still dressed in his business-like attire. About an hour later, witnesses saw him by the yacht club on Ross's Point's first beach. Just after 9 p.m., two women saw Peter and said he was holding something, but they weren't sure what. Around 9.30 p.m., a married couple was parked in the upper lot and saw Peter walking along the water's edge, his pants rolled up to his knees, still wearing his leather jacket. He was seen again by witnesses at 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. Both said Peter was carrying a plastic bag. Around 11.10, a witness saw him sitting on a bench that overlooked the beach. He was last seen alive a few minutes before midnight, walking along the water's edge and carrying a plastic bag. And then the following morning, his body was found by Arthur Kinsella and his son Brian. What wasn't found among his belongings were his glasses, the blue shirt he wore underneath his sweater, the stamps he'd purchased at the post office, the black laptop bag, and the purple plastic bag. There's a lot of theories on why Peter would want to get rid of all of his items to avoid identification once he died is the number one theory. Why he wanted to conceal his identity is harder to explain. There's wild theories online, like he may have been a Nazi, but that would have made him a pretty young Nazi. Was he hiding from a criminal background? Or was he hiding from someone who was looking for him? And why hasn't anyone ever come forward? I got a little hung up on one item that was found with the rest of his belongings on the beach, that bar of hotel soap still in its wrapper. According to investigators, this was not a soap that was available in any hotels in Ireland. It doesn't appear to be a soap from a high-end hotel. There are no brand names and no hotel names on the wrapper. It was a bluish, transparent wrapper with blue writing that said mild soap and hotel care. On the back of the wrapper, there are several words for soap in different languages, Croatian, French, Polish, and others, that indicate it's a soap distributed to hotels in Europe. If he didn't get the soap from the Sligo City Hotel, it's probable he was staying in a hotel before he arrived in Derry. Why, if he was so methodical and so deliberate about all of his actions, did he hold on to it? It's that detail that makes me question whether Peter was intending to die that day on the beach. I know many of the facts point to a man that had accepted the fate of his terminal illness and may have been hoping to die by drowning on his own terms. And it's what a lot of people believe happened. 
But the presence of a bar of soap makes me wonder if he intended on cleaning himself up after his swim. He'd gotten rid of so many possessions, but held on to that bar of soap. If my soap theory carries any weight, then that would indicate Peter Bergman wasn't trying to die that day. And if he wasn't, then there are more questions about why he was walking a beach all day long in his business attire and why he waited until late into the night to go for a swim. And if he wasn't planning on dying that day, then why did he get rid of all of his luggage? One night, while I was unable to sleep, I started thinking about this case. I started looking at it through a different lens. Rather than peering into the world of a man who was trying to hide, I looked through the lens of a man who was very sad, a man that was dying of a terrible illness and had no family left. He traveled to Sligo because it was a place that a loved one had talked about wanting to visit. He didn't dispose of items. He carefully got rid of painful memories to let go of something uncomfortable from his past. He ate his favorite lunch at a bus station. He carried out a bucket list item of wanting to take a swim in the ocean at midnight. But of course, this is all just more speculation. The most common questions that surround the mystery are, how did the man who called himself Peter Bergman arrive in Ireland? Why did he choose to go to Sligo? What was he throwing away, and why was he so careful with the disposing of the items in the purple bag? Why did he provide a false name and address to the hotel? Did he mail letters from the Sligo post office, and if so, who received them, and what was the contents? What did he do with his luggage? Why did he travel to the beach after checking out of the hotel? Why was he wearing underwear over his swim trunks? How has nobody ever come forward to identify him? Peter left many with the impression that he had spent four days in Sligo deliberately taking steps to conceal his identity and then went to the beach to die peacefully on his own terms, knowing that with his cancer diagnosis, he only had a limited time left, that his intention was to swim until he drowned and that his body would wash out to sea and he'd successfully disappear. But Peter didn't drown. He died of a heart attack which pokes holes in the deliberate drowning attempt. Is it possible he took a medication that triggered a heart attack deliberately? A medication that was not detected in the post-mortem exam? Another detail that struck me about this case was the underwear over the swim trunks. What was the purpose? The way I see it is it could have been to protect his dignity, the underwear serving as a method of keeping the swim trunks in place should his body be discovered. Another possible deliberate step taken by Peter Bergman. If his desire was to die alone peacefully, I truly hope he got what he wanted. But I do wonder if there are family members out there that miss him and are unaware of what happened to him. Web sleuths have wondered over the years if Peter Bergman was actually Johannes Eupertus Quist, a man who went missing from Thalen in the Netherlands in July of 2004. That would have made him 47 years old in 2009, which seems younger than Peter Bergman, judging by the footage seen. However, 
Quist was positively identified in 2020 when his body was found in Dunkirk, France. While investigators have spent countless hours trying to identify the man who called himself Peter Bergman, the case remains open and unsolved. They do have his DNA, but as of this recording, there are no updates on whether or not that DNA has been submitted into any genealogy databases. Here's a summary of what we know about the mystery man and how to reach out to police if you have any information. It's estimated that he was in his late 50s to early 60s, 5 foot 10 slender build, gray hair, dark eyebrows, and blue eyes with an olive complexion. He spoke with a thick accent, possibly Austrian or German, and is presumed to be from Europe. He was right-handed. He was a heavy smoker and had terminal prostate cancer, but it didn't appear from his autopsy that he was taking any medications, and doctors have said, given the spread of cancer to his body, he would have been in a lot of pain. He had had a lot of dental work done, including bridges, root canals, and crowns. Peter was buried in an unmarked grave in Sligo Cemetery on September 18, 2009. Six people attended, including the undertaker and the gravedigger. The plot was bought by the health service executive. That's how unclaimed bodies are buried. In 2020, a forensic artist named Hugh Morrison put together a depiction of what Peter Bergman may have looked like using post-mortem photos and footage from the CCTV images. I'll put a link to that depiction in the show notes. If you have any information that may help in identifying the man who called himself Peter Bergman, please check the show notes for who to contact. Thank you so much for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast. If you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Mo and Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.